Welcome to Model Rail Radio. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is being recorded live on TalkShoe, November 21st, 2009. Model Rail Radio is recorded every other Friday usually, but this evening we decided Saturday evening to record on TalkShoe. I have Chris Abbott on the line. Chris and I have been talking wonderfully for the past hour with regards to trains, and we only just now realise that TalkShoe hadn't actually been recording the call. I'll make a note to myself to make sure that it's explicitly recording in the future. Chris, we've just had a wonderful conversation associated with the Christmas Rail Show that you've just returned from. I, I believe it's going on tomorrow as well. Would you like to give an introductory summary to the listeners that are now listening? The annual Christmas train show taking place uh, Saturday today and, uh, and Sunday tomorrow at the International Centre here in Toronto uh, has about... 25 to 30 layouts and 25 to 30 vendors been going on for a number of years. A little smaller this year in recent years overall than it has been in the past. Uh, before, before the 2001 timeframe, uh, there used to be sometimes uh, U.S. Uh, participants coming up, uh, but cross-border stuff has kind of dropped off in the last decade anyway for a variety of reasons, economic and political and, and whatnot. We set up our display. Our, our S-scale display this year is, uh, is about 65 or 75 feet uh, for the six of us. And it's a point-to-point running uh, Digitrax uh, radio system. We had a number of uh, gremlins visit us this morning. Uh, just before the doors opened to public, we ran into a, a short pro- two short problems that uh, kept us running back and forth until almost a half an hour after the show had opened. But we, we did manage to sort it, and uh, we had great comments from a great number of people. We've got another day to go tomorrow and, and quickly knock down and, and put stuff away until the February time frame for the next, the next show that we'll be attending. We've had a lot of fun. We've had a few problems, and we're having a good time doing the ho- being involved in the hobby and doing uh, little bits here and there to try and get more people involved in the hobby. And uh, I think, Tom, you had a, a, few, a few pertinent questions that you'd written down that I, I might be able to, to uh, answer again. Certainly. So, I mean, for people listening in, can you describe your, your particular S-module? Ah, yeah. Uh, my module is an S-curve. It's nine and a half feet long. It has about a 18-inch offset uh, from the entrance and exit of the curve. The minimum radius is about 50 or 52 inches. And uh, it uh, has one siding, uh, seven-car capacity, uh, where a beet loader, a sugar beet loader will go. Uh, it used to be a very common item in the, in the Ontario area in the mid-50s. I was just gifted today with uh, the, the nucleus of the beet loader, I had been mucking about with various mock-ups and, and uh, plastic constructs that didn't look very convincing. And a very good friend of mine gave me a, a brass uh, coal loader that will do the job brilliantly. And I have to be very careful about how I add things to it to, to convert it into the beat functionality without destroying the value of the original, the original uh, item. It's quite a nice piece, and I'd, I'd hate to uh, just cut it up into, you know, cut bits off that don't fit and, and uh, perhaps uh, ruin it as a piece. It's a, apparently, it's a limited edition of some kind, and he happened to onto it 
in mysterious circumstances. Oh. Um, well, he, he gets around a lot, so he might have found it in a state sale. He might have found it in a, a, a moldering in the in the back of a, a glass cabinet in a in a in a shop somewhere. He's he's quite the fellow in terms of uh, his own skills in the hobby. Uh, I I would dearly love to be able to do half of the things that he does half as well as he does them. So, but he's again he's one of the inspirations in the hobby. There's so many of them, but. He's my local inspiration, if, if you'll uh, accept that term. Terrific. Um, the modules are set at 50-inch height off the ground to the top of the railhead, nominal. Uh, there are no grades on my module. We've, we've uh, done away with grades, or we haven't embraced grades for the module setup uh, in, in this case. Track is hand-laid uh, Cody 3 rail on wooden ties, sugar pine ties. Uh, throughout the whole layout, uh, except for the brewery main line. Uh, one of the fellows built a eight-foot section that has a brewery with switching sidings for that. We run the Digitrax radio system, the original half-duplex system, not the newer full-duplex. All I can think of about the module at the moment, oh, it's made up of three sections. It's not, uh, it's not one nine-and-a-half-foot piece. And I built a carrier to lift all three sections up at once. It looks like a sedan chair or a uh, hospital stretcher sort of affair. Uh, I ran into a bit of a problem with that because the new house I bought, I can't get it through the, do- the back door of the house. I have to take everything out of the carrier in the driveway and carry it in the house separately, which is pretty inconvenient, but I'll, I'll figure something out to replace that. I transport it in a small pickup truck uh, back and forth to show along with the legs and the, the stanchions for the, the crowd control rope and all my tools and the tree, the box of trees and, and all that. There's a speeder shed on it that I scratch built from northeastern siding and Mount Albert uh, stripwood. There's also a very famous scarecrow on my module. It appeared in the September 2009 Railroad Model Craftsman as a, uh, as a how-to build feature uh, by my, my, uh, my inspirational friend who uh, built me the Scarecrow to keep my crop safe. That's about it. How many shows do you go to a year? We do three or four shows a year. They're the Christmas train show being the biggest one. There used to be a show in the springtime that was put on by the local historical association, but due to a number of factors that were largely related to bad weather uh, a couple of years in a row, they had very poor turnout, and it cost them financially quite badly, so they, they've given up uh, hosting shows. So we're down to the one major train show and several smaller regional ones uh, outside of the city uh, during the course of the year. Uh, we, try to do, we try to do three, sometimes we get four. Uh, there's a, also a layout tour show event during the, the early fall. We've done that a couple of years and the uh, organization is, is it's set up by a local uh, uh, parish priest, and uh, he opens the church hall for a couple of layouts to be there locally, where you go and register for the tour, and pay your your uh, your fee, and you're given your maps and everything. But there's something there at the registration hall where you can come and see. We've done that twice, and that's quite nice. That's quite a nice uh, venue, actually. Uh, not very big, and there's there's not many people there, but it's uh, it's a good day to 
to uh, with not a lot of pressure on it, and we can we can have some fun ourselves operating the lamp. In terms the, of the in terms of the show that you're at t- today and tomorrow, what's the uh, is there anything new and exciting that you've seen at the show? Yeah, the uh, there's a local HO Fremo group that started up uh, last year, and they're doing the Canada Southern New York Central line uh, from the states up to up through Ontario. A double track main line, and they had 100 and 140 feet of layout at the show today. Uh, very high level of execution, very talented modelers, very nice to see it. And each module is a an accurate representation of a particular spot along the line with proper nameplates made up and photographic references from the area. It's it's a brilliant uh, display of of high quality modeling. There was uh, the uh, Lego the Brick Builders group was there with their Lego trains running uh, monorails and, and uh, two-rail stuff and lunar railroads and, and whatnot. And young and old, they were, everybody was looking at them with uh, some wonder. It was quite a, quite a big display. Uh, what else was new? Uh, Tim Warris was there with his Bronx Terminal which is, uh, as some people know, is uh, an amazing, a complete self-contained layout exactly to scale in HO of the Bronx Terminal done entirely with his custom fixtures because the track arrangement is uh, an amazing spaghetti bowl of uh, convoluted track around a, uh, a wharf with car ferry and a central circular freight house it's truly an amazing piece to see up close. Tim's a, Tim's a great guy to chat about uh, track work, too. It's always always interesting. He's part of the Canada Southern Group as well. He's got a, a module work with them. You put up uh, plates and other things on your, your modular uh, layout to explain to, to the punters, let's use a good British term, the historical uh, references for the, the layout. And also you have, you have a table set up where people are actually building things for the layout to give some perspective to the public of the of the hobby. Do you want to talk a little bit about those two things? You had asked earlier what what we're doing to uh, to engage uh, engage people, and we we've got some um, handouts with uh, lists of of items for sale by various vendors, how where we get our product from, uh, and links uh, to websites where there's uh, references for modeling. We have uh, these uh, ex- explanatory uh, plates that we've got on our various modules talking about some of the things that's on the modules and the buildings and, and industries that are on there and what relationship they have to uh, things in, from our area because we're, we're modeling our area in the mid-50s. Usually Andy and, and David have got something going on at the, one of the tables where they're uh, either building kits or soldering or maybe programming a locomotive with the deco- with decoders in it, uh, maybe uh, even just uh, putting mortar lines in the, in the brickwork on a, on a kit or, or cleaning the flash off a boxcar kit or something like that. We're quite verbal in our, if somebody asks a question, we'll go on for hours on end. Yeah, they they want to know how we build the trees, how we build the roads. Is that static grass? Uh, is the applicator really expensive? I've heard it's it's quite difficult to use. Any number of questions that they're happy to to ask, and we're happy to answer. It's uh, 
so we, we do we do talk to people. It's, it's mostly the adults that ask the questions. There are very few children asking questions. The odd teenager will ask a question. It's amazing today. I noticed uh, a bunch of kids, I would say maybe seven, eight years old, with quite sophisticated uh, recording equipment, uh, HD camcorders and whatnot. And think of what, what I had when I was seven years old. <laughs> it's, uh, there's some disparity there, but it's, it's uh, interesting that they're, they're taking enough of a in personal interest in it to record it for some future reference or, or possible, uh, possible sharing with their friends. And you had an interesting story about uh, women being particularly captivated by the trees. What was oh, they love the, the trees. They were all over the trees today. You know, the guys are, what kind of engine is that? Uh, you know, how many cars will that pull? And uh, the, the women today were, were, oh, I love that birch tree. Oh, that's a terrific elm tree. I think because they're, they're more focused on the aesthetic than they are on the, the technical or mechanical aspects of it. Uh, Oliver, our senior member, just did a whack of trees and using the super trees and knock and hecky uh, materials from uh, from Europe, and he did a fabulous job on these things. They look like a million bucks, and they got a lot of comments. Uh, but he's constantly improving the the scenic treatment on his module set, which is a which two pieces that make up a 90 degree corner uh, with a feed mill and. Uh, on a siding and whatnot, and he's he's a, a real patient, patient person. And every every show, he has a little bit a little bit more added, a little bit more added, and uh, the overall effect is is quite amazing. Now he's done done a terrific job on it. In terms of the experience that you've had bringing these modules to various shows, have you seen a change in the way children have picked up the the hobby? And do you have any thoughts about how? you do things in the future to try and engage children. I'm not seeing a lot of kids directly involved in the hobby. There's parents and children, usually a father uh, with the son, sometimes with the daughter, that will belong to a club. Um, one of the clubs I used to belong to had a couple of father-son, father-daughter teams. But after about nine years old, the kids don't come anymore. They don't want to hang out with dad and the, and the old guys. They want to go... They want to go hang out with their friends and, and do things otherwise. I'm, I'm afraid for the youth that don't have the manual skills because they're not, they're not given the opportunity to, to build things. They're not given the raw material to build things, whether for expense or, or just uh, fear of them making a mess, I suppose, in some cases. Sometimes the parents don't have the manual skills to be able to pass on to the kids. If they are interested in the hobby themselves, then sometimes it's their desires that override what the kids are doing or the ki what the kids' interest might be in the hobby. It's a bit distressing because I'm not seeing the younger crowd. Not that, I, not that our, layout, our layout is not an interactive display. It's not set up to, to encourage children to play with the switches and the buttons and we don't let them run the trains as such because, well, most of them are rare, out of production, not available. Very few of them are ready to run plastic models and whatnot. And that's just a kind of a function of S right now. There's, there's not a huge selection of uh, off-the-shelf stuff that you can buy. There's some, but it tends to be things that are out of stock, out of production. But the kids, the kids are not interested in things that take you know, a month, two months to do. They want to do something that they can have fun with today and put it aside and pick it up again 
when they feel like it. And when you're building things in the hobby or trying to put together a layout, then nothing much happens for a while. There's a lot of carpentry that has to occur, and then there's much fussing about with track and and track nails and and cork and ballast, and then the inevitable electrical issues that that crop up when you start to try and wire it. And you know, it might be a month of Sundays before something is is put together that 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 has some play value. And I think. I don't want to turn adults off on this. The play value is 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 hugely important. If you don't enjoy what you're doing, if it doesn't if it doesn't uh, tweak your interest at some level, uh, I'm going to mangle a, a quote. And the quote is that you can judge the complexity of no, you can judge the sophistication of a society by the complexity of their toys and games. And I think that model railroading as a as a hobby where you build things and a hobby where you simulate things and a hobby where you solve puzzles uh, and construct, there's, there's painting, there's photography, there's electronics, there's uh, fine carpentry, there's rough carpentry, there's figure painting and, and structure building and all this. That's a very sophisticated set of, of uh, tasks in, in this. And then on top of that, once you have the, the diorama. Once you have the the scenario built or the the scene built, you now have the opportunity to simulate a, a real real set of functions: uh, transporting goods from point A to point B on a schedule, on time. Can I get uh, from this siding to the next siding before the the high priority passenger train gets here? You know, a little gamble here and there. Do I run the signal? Do I not? There are so many aspects of it or to it that it's hard to to tie it down to any one thing that any group of models if you pick 10 modelers everybody's got something else they're they're interested in everybody's got a, a muse that they're that they're following and as it as it progresses into the future we may see some change i, I know that in a recession historically hobbies in general pick up because people are spending more time at home and they they want something they can do at home that that is engaging and they you know video games are fine for a certain certain amount of time but they, they don't uh, scratch all itches let's say certainly um, I, I mean i think through the discussion that we had the there's a question from steven in chicago asking where we find our personal spark in the hobby where's the spark in kids today is this true hobby become truly antiquated and he thinks that perhaps it has progressed technologically. If I can answer that also with regards to the narrative of, of kids today, I don't think there's anything that has changed with the fundamental makeup of, of children for at least a millennia, at least genetically and certainly I think psychologically. What has changed in terms of hobbies is the uh, the expensive nature of them fundamentally. I don't think children have jobs as they used to have even of, of my generation. And I don't think, you know, the, the hobby is at a point where a child could put down pocket money on a progressive basis and it would take a certain amount of time to even buy a, a turnout or a few uh, straight sectional track with regards to the current pricing. And certainly engines, boxcars, these kind of things are considerably more expensive than I think the disposable income of the average child. 
it's an interesting period currently because certainly jobs that I did in terms of mowing lawns or friends who you know worked in fast food or these kind of things, these are now jobs that are done by adults. And my concern with regard to the hobby narrative, and I've heard this quite a bit, particularly through Model Rail podcasts, is the idea that if people have more time on their hands and they have more money or they, they want to put money into something that they're working on progressively, the average craftsman structure kit is in the well, if, if the t- one that takes a, a certain amount of time is in the hundreds of dollars range. In terms of, I'm looking at my shelf layout, for example, I put it's possibly four or five feet by four or five feet. I put $200 just in track alone in the shelf. And if I look at the cost of engines, I picked up uh, an EMD NW2 Union Pacific. It cost me $95. Now it's N scale, so I probably pay a little premium associated with that. But that is the that is even the the you know the budget price associated with that. I, I looked around, found a local store that had one that was a little bit dusty, uh, and even that was $95. I think the cost associated with this hobby is prohibitive currently, and that is something that the hobby either needs to address. You, you either want to be a niche hobby in terms of your pricing, or you want to be a mainstream hobby. And unfortunately, the, the powers that be, the enterprises that be, have decided that there aren't going to be cheap trains. I was able to pick up a Union Pacific for $32, again, at a, at a dusty store at the back. But uh, these things you need to be very, very observant with regards to, and children today just don't have access to them. I mean, the critical thing is introductory points. Either adults who have an interest in the hobby, you mentioned that a number of people came up to you in the show, uh, Chris, and said, well, we have all this HO track, we're interested in getting into S, but what do we do with all our HO track? Well, maybe the correct answer is give it to a kid in the neighbourhood, pass it down to the next generation, offer it, as something that the next generation can use and tinker with. When I look at a turnout, uh, a turnout that you know I spent twenty odd dollars on, the thought of buying a turnout and a few sectional pieces of track without the familiarity of how to put the sectional track together and the potential to actually break the turnout. Uh, I, I have my first broken turnout. I still <laughs> have maintained it through my travels. But at the time, you know, the, the cost associated with that wasn't as great as it is currently. But the interesting question is the spark question. And I think Steve is very right in asking this, that it really is to do with the spark and interest and a way of explaining it, which is, uh, you know, interesting to, to children still today. And I mean, ironically, even with this negative narrative, Thomas is just as big as Thomas has been for the past uh, 70, 80 odd years. I mean, there's there's no holding up with regards to the Thomas phenomenon. So maybe children are still being inspired. The 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 minds that are associated with are inspiring them are probably better tuned to kind of commercialising those aspects and offering things at the right price. But Chris, I mean, you you go to three plus shows a year in terms of displaying your your own module. You obviously are heavily involved with the online uh, model rail community. You obviously have a passion in the spark. Where, where do you get your passion from? And can you kind of describe the spark in a, a relatively short description that keeps you interested in this hobby? Oh, good grief. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. It's a continual challenge. Um, I like building things. I like, I like to cook. I like to, to assemble cabinetry and design assembly. 
it's for me it's about the making of stuff it's uh it's in the model railroad hobby when you make something it becomes part of a complete or it can become part of a complete scene with its own narrative and story i i think that that your comment about thomas the popularity of thomas is there because there are characters who have adventures in a an interesting environment and there are bad things happening and good things happening and the children get drawn into the story in as much as as any other aspect of it i mean if it was tugboats or it was uh, helicopters and and whatnot which i believe are, are also children's programs it's it's not so much what they are it's it's the fact that they're they're anthropomorphized to some some extent they're they have their own personalities uh which you know i i can't say that the average uh uh h6 uh 10 wheeler really from cn has much of a personality i just like the aesthetics of it but the the narrative the story that i'm involved in is 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 one that's more of a there's a historic context to it. There's uh, also uh, the gameplay aspect of it. And every piece I complete becomes part of a bigger whole, whether that's whether all of that equipment and all of the, the scene is, is mine, or in the case of the modular layout, when, when everybody is, is participating in the story. It's hard to define. There's the spark, the interest, the desire. I like all things mechanical. I love steam, steam power itself whether it's steam cars, steam boats, steam trains, is an extremely big draw for me. I, I took a ride uh, when I was in uh, in England. I took a ride on the replica of Trevithick's 1803 Cole Brookdale locomotive. And, I mean, it's a replica, but this thing is is like this fire-breathing dragon out of out of mythology. It's It's an incredible piece of kit, and... If that doesn't get your creative juices flowing, is to be next to something that was made out of, hand forged out of iron and steel, and and uh, must have looked like the devil itself when it when it first appeared on the scene. If that doesn't get your juices flowing, I don't know what will. Frankly, you know, you're you're de- dead from the neck up. I think if if that doesn't inspire you in some way, but even just in, in terms of awe, you know. Certainly, and my own answer to. To Steve's question, and I, I'm 10 years younger than both you and Steve. But for me personally, it's I've, I've looked at other hobbies, radio controlled boats, planes, and cars in particular in terms of manufacturing hobbies. I have a, a, a cupboard full of toy soldiers that I picked up when I was in the UK, and I kind of have a legacy interest in, in the podcasts and the, the magazine discussion that comes through the podcasts from toy soldiers as well. I think it's interesting to look at all these hobbies. But the the thing that really draws me to model rail is it's not computers. And as you know, Chris, I mean, I both with regards to my professional life and also my main primary hobby is computer related. It's heavily computer intensive. It requires a lot of screen time. And I've set up a shelf layout just above my my primary home computer, and I find myself just doing switching problems in the evening based on the fact that it's there, it's accessible. I, I have a table layout downstairs, but I fear that the, the shelf layout above my computer is going to be my, my more heavily used layout, primarily because it gives me something to take my mind off 
a day at work, a day of uh, you know managing the the organisations that I look after, and also my primary hobby, which is also connected to Apple and Intel in some very crazy and perverse way. So for me, the model railroading hobby is something which is not computerised. It has some background in obviously electronics and carpentry and there's a lot of design and there's a lot of aesthetics and these are skills that I like to deal with. There's nothing musical associated with it or nothing musical that I've found yet associated with it. That would be the, the perfect combination of my outside interests. But it is something which is relatively reflective. It's fundamentally an engineering hobby, which is based on a number of the other hobbies that I've mentioned. And I think it's something which is relatively easy to do when your brain is not in a focused state. So in the evening, periodically, on on weekends, these kind of things, it's not a heavy, cognitively intensive thing, but it enables you to have a degree of reflection. And my wife, as I've said in the early recordings of this show, has an interest in structure building. She also has an interest in photography. So through the week while I was running trains on the shelf layout, she set up a camera and asked me to do a particular series of scenarios so she could test some motion blur principles and things like that. And I think it's a beautiful kind of coupled hobby as well in that regard, that if you can find things that your your spouse is interested in, you've talked in the past, Chris, with regards to the garden layout potentially being something where you could do the engineering and, and your wife could look at the uh, the botanical aspects of it. I mean, I think there's potential in this hobby to do these kind of things. The cost concerns me. I think the cost in terms of it being a broader hobby and something that people can easily pick up or understand, I think there needs to be ways in the hobby, and this is certainly why I'm moving this internet radio format that I've specialised to minimise cost into this aspect as well, because certainly I find this with the toy soldiers in particular, the, the wargaming podcasts, there is a wide variety of structures. But I think it's a hobby which offers a lot to people that have already a background in some degree of engineering, some degree of electronics, maybe some degree of carpentry. But I think there's a fundamental aesthetic that really captivates all, all folks involved with, with, with model trains. You're right. People have particular periods and people want to ascribe particular interests to their particular periods, but there is a broader aesthetic that I think is very captivating and fundamentally relaxing. I mean, if it wasn't a relaxing hobby, this is the problem I found with building planes. You fly the plane and you're on edge the entire time the plane's in the air because basically you've got to land the plane and if you break the plane, you've then got to repair the plane. I had the same experience with regards to cars and the same experience with regards to boats. These are... uh, Hobbies with it have a certain degree of cost that's built into them through the fact that everything breaks fundamentally. And the beauty yeah. with trains is if you do it well or if you do it with a certain degree of pausing, you can minimize the amount of breakage so you're not actually replacing absolutely everything every single time as you tend to do with planes and occasionally with cars and even more occasionally with boats. So, I mean, I think in terms of the engineering hobbies, aside from complete static models, this is probably the, the best mixture of both worlds in terms of actually being able to build on and invest in on a progressive basis in a kind of long-term hobby. That's my answer to uh, Steve's question. And I, I, I have to commend you for your patience here, Chris, because I mean, this has been an extraordinary uh, recording situation and I, I promise faithfully that this will never happen again. Um, <laughs> but I'd, I'd like to thank you for the, for the chance to chat with you this evening and um, maybe maybe when you're next on, we can talk about a, a few topics that I've picked up. I mean, my recent experience, I've been going into the local hobby stores and buying second-hand rolling stock recently 
just to get a sense of the skill set that exists out in the Las Vegas community because certainly my experiences with regards to doing this program and communicating with, uh, with people such as yourself and Steve is that there, there is a kind of silent community that even exists passively in my area. I just need to seek them out. So by buying second-hand rolling stock, I've found some amazing hobby builders, uh, some amazing modifiers, and just taking existing uh, rolling stock and doing their own particular improvements. And I've been picking up cards and email addresses and things like that. So maybe when we next record, um, I'll, I'll bring some of that discussion uh, into the recording. And uh, hopefully, we'll take Duncan McCreon at some stage. I think he was planning on calling in, but... Uh, he obviously didn't make it this recording. Maybe next recording he'll call in. So I'd like to thank you, Chris, for the chance to chat with you and all the best with the show tomorrow. I, need to, I feel very mindful that you probably need to get to bed and have plenty of rest. Well, I'm resting my feet right now. The concrete's not so good for the old uh, soul, souls anymore. So I'm going to pack it in and... Uh, well, actually, I, I lie. I'm going to go up and read the Digitrax manual <laughs> and then I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> We'll have fun with that, and uh, we'll re be recording again in two weeks' time. And uh, if Steve likes this time, we'll uh, we'll record on a Saturday evening and hopefully actually record all of the conversation next time. Wonderful talking with you, Chris. Terrific, Todd. Terrific talking to you too, Tom.